32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United Ireland. United Ireland. We usually take a county, dive into an issue relevant to that county, and then see where in the world it brings us. But in these extraordinary times, we're responding to issues emerging from life within a global pandemic. This week, as the pandemic sitch accelerates a cashless society, we ask, is this actually a good thing? No. Question mark. Um, muchos gracias to all of our wonderful Patreon supporters uh, who get the lovely Sunday Soothe exclusively on a Sunday. If you would like to support us on Patreon, please do. Um, the arse is falling out of the, acad- of the academy, of the economy and of so much stuff. So we know people can't afford to support their fave podcast. But if you can give us three quid a month, that would really help. Keep the wolves from the door, as it were. The wolves the Greens are trying to bring back. I hope they do. Um, and obviously go and enjoy the Sunday Soothe as well. I need a Sunday Soothe right now. Um, how are you feeling, Una? Well, Andrea, you may have noticed I've been away for a week. Uh, I was camping in the Bear Peninsula in West Cork. And to say it was a rejuvenating, stunning experience would be to undersell it. I had such a beautiful time. Um, just, I have not, like, I haven't, since I, I haven't camped um, outside of like when I was in the Cubs or as a child uh, or uh, obviously at festivals, you know, every summer or whatever. So I haven't really done the whole camping thing. I was never one of those families that like did the whole deadly we're going camping in France kind of holiday thing. I can see Andrea grimacing on Zoom here. (laughs) So, um, but so me and Sarah, we have our big festival tent and we just went down and found beautiful uh, campsite for 15 euro a night in Alahis on the beach with amazing like gorgeous headlands and sea and cliffs and it was spectacular. So big up the Bear Peninsula and as you know uh, most of my time travelling in Ireland is based on visiting megalithic sites um, as we don't, and, as we don't know to be honest <laughs> so um, there was, there's so much um, stuff around there that would interest uh, my Ringfort Stone Circle uh, Fulloch Thia uh, Joyful you know, that's what I get a buzz out of. Um, and one of them in particular, the Uruk uh, Stone Circle, which we which we hiked to over this kind of mountain slash valley was, to be honest, I think it's probably one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. Okay. Um, so, the, yeah, it's just so gorgeous down there and really, really nice to get out of the claustrophobia of the city and just walk for hours and hours and hours every day. My idea of hell, walking <laughs> for hours and then ending up in a camp. Your <laughs> grand. Um, <laughs> I feel like maybe I need to open my mind. And I do. I did go on a like a glamping. I hate that word. Uh, trip to Croatia, and I did become one with nature. But actually, no. Actually, there was mosquitoes in our tent that we had to. Uh, like spend the night hunting we had to run in the middle of a storm to the toilets um no it was absolutely vile camping is a no for me 
I just enjoyed the challenge and the feeling of kind of self-sufficiency. Mm-mm, no. But I mean, camping is lesbian culture. So I understand that you, um, because you're so homophobic, basically, <laughs> that it would just not well, be your thing. Oh my God. <laughs> it's the first thing I think of when I think of you, Andrea, the, the incredible fiery homophobia that drives your disposition. Oh, no. How are you feeling, by the way? I am feeling, <laughs> I don't know. I'm feeling uh, incensed, enraged, like frustrated at all the fucking shenanigans that are going around. It feels like we're in an alternative universe with uh, some of the stuff that's going on. And it's very hard to be able to take it on board without going, are you actually messing? Are you actually messing? Are you actually messing? That's how I feel. Well, that brings us straight to the state of the nation. You alluded uh, there, Andrea, to the absolute clown car of a government um, that keeps uh, flipping over um, on various omni-shamble situations. It it really is quite incredible. Now, obviously, this government has been known from the get-go for being a shit show, uh, essentially. And that's that's okay. Maybe that's a bit of a bias. It's also kind of facts, like the amount of crises self-generated crises that they don't even seem to have the momentum to lurch towards. They're just like stumbling all over the place. I mean, I've seen 17-year-olds falling out of the palace on a Friday night more together than this uh, <laughs> coalition. Um, and and remarkably, I mean, I wrote a column last week about um, uh, how the whole thing was just like a complete shit show and, you know, what, 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 what would happen next? I go away for a week, uh, you know, looking at the stars uh, on uh, the southwest of Ireland. And big stones. Um, and big stones. And I come back and so in that five or six days, there was basically uh, rushed through a thing to try and give super junior ministers 16K pay rise, which they then had to reverse Gift, gifted back to the state like that terminology. Yet then they still ended up earning 10 grand more than than previous ones. Then there was the whole absolute madness of all of the stops at uh, the airport where people were getting not just the PUP, the um, pandemic empl- unemployment uh, payment um, taken off them, but in one case, somebody got their child benefit taken off them. And um, people got getting on inspectors getting on planes and all this palaver. Then there was a whole thing that you can't travel if you're on the pup. That has now been reversed. And then on Tuesday night, uh, I came back from Cork on Tuesday afternoon, and of course plunged myself into um, the mess um, and uh, watching the the Arachthus TV as is my as is my want. Uh, and seeing Heather Humphrey stand up and, and pushing through this legislation while uh, various um, TDs <clears throat> were speaking against it, including really well, like yeah, it's just one of those moments where you're just so glad Gary Gannon got elected um, and Claire Caran as well from Sinn Féin and Sean Sherlock from Labour and uh, the notorious RBB, Richard Boyd Barrett, um, speaking on behalf of uh, the people whom uh, will be impacted by this line 
in the uh, legislation, this is the COVID uh, payment or social well, COVID social welfare legislation thing, that you'll have to be uh, actively seeking work if you're on the PUP, uh, even though uh, so many people who are on that haven't actually lost their jobs. They haven't been made redundant. Their industries and their sectors have been shut down and they actually cannot go back to work. But I think what uh, is even more terrifying is the way that it was brought in and the bigger issue, the fact that uh, Leah Radker, who's the Taunashta, made this statement on TV. And then the next morning, it was edited on government websites and in uh, documents. And then the backpedaling um, that's been highlighted by the ICCL of how this story has, how the, these uh, clauses have come about rather than actually announcing that they're in place. So that's, to me, the bigger issue. Well, not the yeah, bigger issue, but a, like a more sinister issue. Uh, element to it as well as the unfairness and the um, unjust like uh, targeting of people who are on uh, social welfare or pandemic unemployment. Um, it's absolute the terror of what people are re- retrospectively doing um, based on what a minister says on television. I think you're really right about that, Andrea, because it's, it's about a broader uh, well, all of it is is kind of rooted in this incompetence um, of this government and the the kind of real realization that there doesn't really seem to be a plan, and that not you know, Miho Martin is kind of choo chewing along and throwing the the rails in front of the train, hoping that it'll get somewhere. You know, all the while not noticing the several oncoming trains uh, that are are rooted in in the behavior of. I mean, what what even is it? Like, is it incompetence? But but what you're saying there about this really weird behaviour is the lack of transparency, um, the weird legal uh, implications around stuff that Heather Humphreys was saying as well, like um, the data issue in terms of who was doing the inspections and how they were passing them on to the Department of Social Protection. Like... Jesus, I mean, what uh, what is going to happen next? I mean, every single day, well, and there then, seems to be some fuck up. On top of that, what I found to be uh, like amazingly bizarre is that, like, the, I think there was three green TDs on every kind of broadcast media giving out about how it's it's so wrong, but then none of them uh, voted against the whip in the in the in the vote. And even though there was um people from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael who did vote against the whip, but yet the Greens all voted in favour of not discussing this issue. Which Yeah, I mean this is where the Greens are really, you know, they've made their bed and it's funny how when you're kind of talking to people who would have thrown them a vote or you know, giving them a, a number one preference. Like, there's a. I don't want to be the person who's like, I met a man uh, who was who told me a story. You know, the man with two pints. But you know, I have spoken to kind of multiple different people just in passing. I haven't even raised it. Who were saying things like, "I'm never voting for the Greens again," and that is a very sad thing uh, because we do need <clears throat> green forward policies, but. It is a bit of an indictment when you have uh, these kind of things happening that really, really impact people's lives in a devastating way. And, you know, Eamon Ryan's on the news talking about some greenway or something. Now, I'm all for cycle lanes and greenways and all these kind of things. Quality of life issues, so important. Um, But it, it just looks a bit whack 
right now. And, and especially, as you say, when you have all these greens giving out yards about, oh, I'm looking into this data stuff around the airport or this is unfair. And then they're turning around and because, of course, they're whipped by Jacques Charm, um, they have to fucking go along with this. But this is like, that feels like anti-democracy. And I, I don't want to get into the legitimacy of a whip, but it's like... A, don't go on the media giving out about it and then not vote against it or go against your whip. Like you, like being told how to vote, I feel like is the most undemocratic thing in the world. I mean, this is the, yeah, the kind of perennial issue of, of the whip. I mean, people will say, well, in order to pass legislation and get stuff through and have a cohesive, you know, line that people aren't arguing about stuff uh, <clears throat> which there are anyway, actually, in the doll all day, every day, uh, that you need this this structure, um, this kind of disciplinary organisational structure where the government all votes together and that if you vote against it, you face party suspension. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's a, a mechanism that is very blunt. And the thing is, when you're in government with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, they're going to be passing some things that are very unpalatable and the Greens are held to a higher standard mm. because people perceive them to have other politics. Uh, but when you're going along with this stuff, I mean, how they're going to come out of it, not absolutely scalped, I do not know. Um, other things going on at the State of the Nation, what's happening in Kerry? Uh, there was a hunger strike uh, started yesterday in the Skellig Star Hotel in Cahir Savine. Um, did I say it right? Uh, which is in Kerry, a direct provision centre, um, because of claims that they are siphoning off food and water and they're being rationed. Um, and there's a water order in the town. So people, um, you can only drink bucket water, so they're not being provided with enough water. And um, basically, um, we are looking at an institutional um, what would scandal, scandal, I guess. Scandal, yeah. like of how in, the, in 2020, how we are encountering a hunger strike in a direct provision centre um, and how this is going on. It, it, like, it, it doesn't bear thinking about, to be honest, and I hope they get uh, the proper investigation. But another question that's been raised, because I saw that the uh, DOJ were down there inspecting it, but because it's a private run centre, they aren't responsible for it, so they can't intervene, which raises the question of if we're providing these uh, services as a state privately and then we can't intervene um, and these services are for profit, the whole moral and um, ethics of these, which are already in question, is highlighted even more that they're in absolute shambles. Yeah, because I think that, what was it, the Department of Justice were saying that they can't comment on uh the actions of a service provider so so something like that yeah but it's just like it's the total neoliberal thing of have all these different kind of um nebulous uh structures where nobody basically takes responsibility and you're just constantly passing the book around until people become so gaslit that they give up um i'm sure lots of people who are dealing with state uh agencies at the moment in terms of sorting out their the pub payment or, you know, dealing with intrao or, you know, these emails that go into a black hole and being on hold and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really, really difficult at the moment. And it's, it's certainly taken a turn for the worse, I think, in terms of the criticism the government is getting. And, you know, 
look, people are human. You'd hope that people are trying to do their job well. But holy shit, they're making a balls of it right now. So we'll we'll stay on top of that uh, story in, in the Skellig Star Hotel and uh, hopefully get back to it soon. But now, a cashless society. Good thing, bad thing. We're joined by a super interesting guest to discuss this topic. So Brett Scott is an author, a journalist, a self-described financial hacker, exploring the intersections between money systems, finance and digital technology. In 2013, he published a really interesting book, The Heretic's Guide to Global Finance, Hacking the Future of Money. Uh, He's got a new book coming up 2021 on the global monetary system and digital finance. He's written loads of loads of other stuff, The Guardian Wired. He's worked on different projects and campaigns of financial reform and alternative finance. He's the winner of, uh, previously the winner of the Ethics and Trust in Finance Global Prize. He also runs the website Altered States of Money, which you should definitely check out, um, looking at all different uh, contemporary kind of discussions around modern money. Um, So Brett, thank you for being on United Ireland. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. How did you come to work in this area? Where did your kind of kernel of interest begin? Um, well, I've worked on uh, around doing about finance um, and high finance for about 12 years. I actually used to work as a broker in the financial sector, um, but had always been involved in various social movements as well and kind of activism of various sorts. So I have a kind of combination of uh, political experience, but also this financial experience that I combine. And actually, the stuff around cash was I started doing, I guess, probably about um, maybe about five years ago or so. I started getting into it um, because I'd been looking at monetary systems a lot. And I realized that a lot of the reporting around what sometimes is called cashlessness um, was often very. Uh, I would just say inaccurate and a lot of people weren't seeing the kind of the power dynamics that were going on behind the scenes in monetary systems. So I started writing a lot more about it and I discovered that like many people, you know, when I normally when I write about stuff like, you know, investment banking and that kind of thing, there's a sort of a certain set number of people who get interested in that because it's quite technical sometimes. Whereas the issue around cash, I found lots of people were interested because it's something that touches a lot of people on a day-to-day basis. Um, and it was a much wider issue. Big time. I mean, yeah, I mean, and I think... I think, though, when we conceive of a cashless society, let's say if you haven't delved too much into it or what's called a cashless society, we kind of tend to think very basic things in terms of how consumers uh, or people, as they're also known as, uh, have been nudged to kind of dispense with cash you know, from various kind of currencies, effectively erasing very small denominations, as the euro has done, for example, one and two cent pieces for the most part. And also the growth of contactless payment, which, you know, grew again in terms of limits that were available to people during the pandemic. But where is the drive for cashlessness really coming from? Yeah, I mean, look, the traditional story that you'll hear in sort of uh, mainstream forums or uh, it's been told for many years now is that the... uh, demise of the cash system is a bottom-up process. 
i.e. you'll often see these sentences like, quote-unquote, consumers are going cashless. You know, that's, that's a very like yeah. typical thing you'll see in a newspaper. Um, and you know, this, this will spread out to other stuff, like, for example, the, the closure of ATMs. They'll say, you know, consumers opting to not use ATMs anymore, so banks closing them down. Like, this is like the basic line. It's always like driven by the ordinary person on the street. Um, whereas uh, what a lot of people like me and sort of more critical um, thinkers on this issue, and I'm not the only one, there's been many people looking at this issue for a long time. Um, what we point out is actually there's been a, a heavy amount of top-down element to this as well, which is often completely left out of the story. Um, banks for a long time intensely dislike the cash system. So do payments companies like Visa and MasterCard, who basically stand to gain massively from the demise of the cash system. Um, and also many states have agendas in getting rid of cash. Um, and actually all these players in various ways over the years have done things to undermine the cash system. And you, you use this term there, nudge. Uh, that's a really good term to use because uh, people have been nudged out of the cash system and... I don't know if you, if, if your uh, listeners know this term, libertarian paternalism. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that you, it's like what supermarkets do, you know, like you, you put chocolates, you know, at the eye level of a little kid as they walk past to go to the checkout counter and then they suddenly see the chocolate and then they kind of like nudge their parents to, try to, to, to buy the chocolate. But the whole thing is you sort of structure a supermarket in a certain way to make people make t t decisions. And that's, um, what's called like, like libertarian paternalism, this idea that you're going you're gonna to make people believe that they're choosing something, but really you're structuring the environment in a way which makes them likely to choose that thing. Okay. I mean, it's a very similar thing when thinking about this issue around cash. People might sort of vaguely perceive themselves to be choosing to use, say, digital payment, but actually many things over the years have been done to make it more and more likely that they will start to choose that. For example, I mean, the closure of ATMs is a very good example of this. As you close down ATMs, it makes it harder and harder to access cash, which means people are more and more likely to actually uh, be forced to use digital payment. Okay, so there's all these like self-fulfilling feedback loops that the banking sector and these various other players have been working on, I'd say. Um, and sometimes they overtly talk about this. I mean, some of these companies overtly talk about how they're trying to engineer the environment to stop people using cash. Um, so yeah, that's, the, I guess, the first thing. And then and this is why I would also say I don't use this term cashless society. Um, I use another term, which is the bankful society, because... <laughs> Like what you're getting when you remove cash is the alternative system, which is the digital payment system run by the banking sector. All right. And that's the basic point. Like the cashless society is the bank payment society. Mm. And that's never talked about really. <laughs> That's a great way of, of flipping it and framing it in a way that kind of is, is calling out the, the, the brokers of power, I suppose. It does seem to dovetail with, um, you know, increasing fortunes in terms of like third party fees and, and banking fees more generally. And I, I mean, I, I, from my own perspective, like, I guess there's kind of two streams. One is the very like digital aspect of, you know, PayPal, Revolut, and then the systems that underpin those, like Stripe, Square, you know, things like that. 
And then the other is like, I suppose what we conceive as the traditional banking sector, even though that's changing all the time. Um, Many people, I guess, in some ways are happy or maybe think they're happy with the convenience of it. Um, But you have, you end up with this situation where much like media subscriptions, we used to have a wallet of notes or a pocket of coins, you now have a very fragmented and varied way of paying for things. And it becomes increasingly hard to avoid like even the peer pressure of signing up to a new service. I experienced this myself when I was just constantly being told by friends, oh, I'll revolute you, I'll revolute you. I'm like, I don't have revolute. I don't want another thing. But of course, then ultimately, I quote unquote, have to, you know, get revolute. Is the cons- is the like person really winning out here? Um, if the way to the like some people think that the variety of ways you can pay things is helpful because it gives you options. But I often feel like it just fragments things an awful lot. And you have just these silos where you don't really know how much money you have because there's some in your PayPal and some in your revolution, whatever. Yeah, look, uh, one of the things you've got to make a distinction between here, which is very important, which is often subtly missed in this discussion is that there's a difference between digital payment and cashless society mm. so there's nothing about using a digital payment that means the cash system has to be destroyed it's entirely possible to have both of these forms of payment that existing at one time all right so sometimes when you see these articles about or discussions about quote unquote cashlessness it's all about like well people like revolut people enjoy these things so and so and so but that, that to me is not the point like it, I don't, i'm sure people enjoy revolut in, in various ways um but that's different to saying i'm going to destroy the cash system and one of the best like just uh, metaphors to sort of think about this is to think about transport systems so think about a modern city it's got like at least three or four modes of transport right there's like maybe public transport private cars and then bicycles all right that's a what we just say a multimodal transport system there's different modes of transport now when you're thinking about a payment system it's quite similar uh we say like okay there might be these sort of uh things like paypal and stuff which are basically just plugged into the banking sector they're just they're basically just extensions of the banking sector okay people don't realize this that a lot of these apps are just plugged in to the banks okay they're sort of surface layers um, that, that use the banking sector as the plumbing. Okay. So all of those things with all their seeming diversity and fragmentation, as you say, you know, there's like a thousand different apps and stuff. They're all basically the same system. They're all plugged into the same underlying system. Okay. So that's like one mode of payment. Um, but then another mode of payment is this offline physical form of payment, which is cash. Okay. And if you're trying to maintain diversity in a payment system, you want to maintain both of those broad options, right? Um, and so, like that's that's one big point to say. And so, so I guess I always call cash the bicycle of payments. Okay, it's like it's the it's the thing that you know when the electricity goes down, it's still there. It's like easy to use. You don't necessarily want to use it for like if you to use this transport metaphor. You know, you you won't use it for long distance stuff, and you won't use it for like you know various other things. But um, you know, t- just to finish this transport metaphor like just you know the the presence of cars doesn't mean you want to get rid of bicycles i mean you want both Mm. of these things right so this is the the same point with payment systems and people often like 
jump from this this point of saying, well, there's these cool digital things to being like, well, therefore the cash system must end. It's like no, you can simul- you have to simultaneously maintain both of these, and and central banks understand this because they understand this idea on how you maintain payment system resilience. Um, but on this point about like, yeah, these these digital um, apps and stuff. Well, as I said, point one, many of them are actually just layers pasted over the banking sector, so they might look like they're um, not, but they often are. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the the traditional story in many technology scenes beyond banking and beyond you know payments is that you know well people are opting to choose these things, people opt to choose them. But like the reality of how this stuff like embeds itself in society is far more complex. There's all these kind of like network effects. People find themselves being sucked in or pushed in or manipulated in, like. Um, yeah, maybe the last thing I'll say about that is like, traditionally the economics discipline, if you listen to economists speaking about human choice, they always make out that people are these like independent agents who walk around making these independent choices. But most people in their in their everyday life actually experience themselves being pressured into things or not really knowing and just sort of stumbling into something. So, And it's been very similar with digital payments. People have often just sort of like stumbled in, been pushed in, um, and then find themselves getting increasingly like locked into those systems. Hmm. What's the psychology of cashlessness in terms of increasing spending? Because frequently I find that the realness of spending is removed when it's done without cash. Yeah, there's actually this, um, I, I personally don't haven't done these studies, but there have been quite a lot of these studies um, that, are, that people have been running. Actually, there's um, a charity in London called, um, uh, I think it's in London, called M- Money and Mental Health which is looking at the sort of, um, you know, these, these links between, uh, you know, mental health and sort of spending and indebtedness and this kind of stuff. So doing sort of charitable work around that. Um, and that's where I first came across some of these, these studies about, um, the fact that digital spending, um, or you call it cashless spending, I call it bank digital spending, Mm um, is, Yes, feels less real to a lot of people, and it's often harder to track. And actually, when you look at if you when you look at studies as to why people prefer cash, because central banks will do these surveys where they where they poll people and say what form of payment do you use and why do you why do you like it? Um, one of the main reasons why people have historically cited cash is that it feels more tangible and allows them to budget better. Okay, so a person will draw it out and they'll can sort of physically experience how many units of money they have. Whereas when your units of money are these sort of digital records or these, it's like in a digital account, you're sort of tapping away and it can, um, it feels a more kind of surreal. It's actually very similar to when you like, I mean, it's, there's probably an equivalent to like when you're trying to buy stuff on websites, right? You sort of see, yeah. an, you see this thing on a website and you're like, I can't really try it on. It seems like cool, but I can, it seems like it's like a slightly like less, "Quote unquote real experience," and, and it's very similar with the uh, with the digital payment. Um, but yeah, there definitely are concerns about that, and I think there's also there's also just just general like some people bear in mind like in mainstream economics type circles, they think that's a great thing because they they believe people will spend more with these faster systems, and that's the whole point about the, the general ideology in our economic system is that you got to make people do more and more stuff, spend more and more stuff, like speed up the treadmill more and more and more. And that's always good. Like more is always good. 
in modern economics. Um, whereas actually, like for lots of people, the point is that you should try and slow down. Mm. Um, maybe the last story I'll give about that is actually I was speaking to this Brixton tattoo artist and who only accepts cash. And I asked him, like, why do you guys only accept cash? And he's like, well, one of the main reasons is that you get these like drunk people coming in to try to get tattoos. And then like if you force them to go and draw money out of an ATM, it gives them time to sort of like reconsider whether they should really be making this life-changing decision of having a tattoo, right? Um, And actually that's precisely that friction, which is important to giving people some like, uh, you know, giving them some more mindfulness as it were about what they're doing. Well, you're able to conceptualize what money is. I mean, I, I certainly find with my much resented Revolut account is that I when I see a figure in that, um, I I don't even conceive of it as money, and and I don't know how that's it. That's a I've noticed myself interacting with the number in that way, which is a new development that goes beyond, you know, tapping a debit card or something. And I it's it's quite unnerving in a weird way. Yeah. Um. But one of the things that always kind of enters into this conversation is around how the less cash there is um, running around an economy or a society or a city is that um, people who do not have access to digital forms of payment will be impacted and that that kind of cashlessness mirrors the usual how the usual vulnerabilities in society break down yeah. in terms of who it, who it impacts. I was having a conversation, I think last year with a woman who runs a, some kind of mobile banking firm. And she was kind of contesting this was saying, well, actually that's quite a, you know, Western North perception and something like mobile banking has been really beneficial in developing economies where there are le- less access to traditional bank accounts or the traditional banking system. Where do you fall down on that? Like, is the perception overplayed um, or is it is it real? It, feel, it seems like, it seems real to me that if you don't have money floating around um, a city, let's say, um, then obviously people who can't, you know, who don't have debit cards or who don't have smartphones to have app, like banking apps on them will be adversely impacted. Yeah. I mean, look, the basic, the basic way to think about this is, um, well, okay, let's just to take a step back on, on that. I use that metaphor of the, of the bicycles and cars. Yeah. Okay. Now, imagine you have a society with only bicycles, right? Nobody's ever going to argue that it's a bad thing to introduce cars, you know? So, actually, many many of these uh, um, international types of things where there's like people are only using cash and then somebody comes in and says, I'm introducing this new digital app, which will enable you to do, you know, payments in a new way. I mean, that authentically can be empowering, certainly, in much the same way that a person who gets a truck when they've previously been using only bicycles, that could actually be authentically empowering. Okay. So the point about this isn't that digital payment can't be empowering. Um, it's about you don't want to destroy the alternative. You know, you don't, you don't want only 
cars. And that's that's this whole this whole point about how you how do you like get balance in a payment system. Um, but yes, in what happened in in lots of places like Kenya and stuff is that essentially these these telecoms companies um, just uh, realize that most. Uh, people had mobile phones and they had these SIM cards, which basically identify them. And then they said, oh, we can, we can plug into a bank and basically enable people to move money around by using their SIM numbers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of doubles as a kind of account, but it plugs again into the banking sector. So that, that's what's happened in a lot of these countries with these mobile payment systems. Um, but yeah, like the, in the, um, in Europe and stuff like uh, that, that was never the way it developed. In Europe, you had this traditional banking sector, and the banking sector historically um, basically you served rich people. I mean, <laughs> to put it bluntly, and that's what the banking sector originally was: it serves rich people, and then only later starts to slowly include poorer people because basically it's about they're not poorer people aren't profitable to banks, so like. They only really want to get involved with poorer parts of society if they can find ways to extract profit. Um, and so this has been like one of the weirdest elements of this debate around. So when people are talking about the inclusion aspects of this, so like if, if for example, we had to just suddenly just destroy cash tomorrow, there would be like loads and like, you know, millions of people who would suddenly be excluded from the economic system because they basically cannot, they don't have bank accounts and would be excluded. Okay. Um, so actually when, when like mainstream politicians and stuff are talking about this, what they tend to say is that we want to basically um, include people into the digital payment systems. Basically, we, we want to onboard them into the banks. Okay. And this is, um, I sometimes refer to this as like, as like a kind of like life raft mentality. So there's this whole idea that there's all these poor sods out there who haven't been lucky enough to be absorbed into the banking sector yet. All right. And we've got to kind of save them. And then this is like a critic and this and that this is like a great humanitarian task. Okay. So like save everybody and onboard them onto Visa and MasterCard and the banking sector's systems. All right. Which is basically like governments trying to help private businesses get more customers, essentially. Yeah. Um well what governments should be doing is saying we're gonna maintain a parallel public system which does not rely upon these huge corporations, and we're going to also protect it. We're going to actually actively promote it and tell people why it's a good thing. And in different countries, this has um, got different dynamics to it. I mean, I'm not sure in uh, in Ireland and stuff, but like uh, there's, you know, uh, in the UK, the, the the Bank of England hasn't hasn't like gone and uh, actively promoted cash it's just let it be it's let it be trampled on let it let it get trampled over but like for example the german central bank which is part of the eurozone they've gone out and actually tried to start protecting cash um yeah sorry that's kind of a long one <laughs> no no not at all but let's talk about the impact of um the pandemic on accelerating um this weird multifaceted trend uh how ca how cash kind of became the enemy um of of the banking sector and people who have who are tapped into that or are influenced by that kind of thought. What is your take on how the pandemic has impacted this uh, sphere? Uh, yeah. Well, it's had it's done massive damage to the cash system, and um, wrongly so. So, this cash system has taken a huge hit. 
in in this this pandemic um ironically though it's it's done often been done on the basis of unscientific fake news as it were um so technically speaking pin pads which are those you know when you stick in your card into one of those terminals mm-hmm. those are more dangerous than cash and this is this is like comes from the German Central Bank says this. The Bank for International Settlements says this. The Bank for International Settlements is like the is like a mega sort of financial international financial institution that all the central banks work with. Okay, so BIS, Bank for International Settlements, they've gone out and said scientifically, pin pads are more dangerous than cash. Okay, and yet, like when I'm walking into like chain stores right now in in London, they're all saying. Hey, you got to use cards. You can't use cash. Okay. Especially even in these stores where basically people are spending over the contactless limit. So there's like, I was in a sports store the other day where they basically, you know, people are buying things like, you know, tennis rackets and stuff like that, which are often over the 45 pound limit in the UK for contactless payments. So basically people are plugging their, their numbers into those screens. Um, and the store is promoting that as being safer than cash. All right. It's like channeling hundreds of people to touch the same surfaces. All right. So this is like, it's totally unscientific how this all works. Um, but nevertheless, like all the stores are sudden, are suddenly saying it. They're like, we, we don't want to accept cash. It's dangerous. Um, the world health organization has rejected this. They said, we, are, we, we like they, they, they don't, they won't say that. Like they, they, they were the British telegraph newspaper went out and said, falsely that the world health organization claimed that cash was dangerous and the world health organization came back and said that's like total crap we did not say that um so yeah it's it's taking a hit but um there's a few of us in the uk trying to work on a campaign around this uh trying to get like the standards boards and stuff to stop like start clamping down on on this on the false claims um but yeah, it's going to have, it's been a massive win for the digital world more generally, right? It's not only the digital mm. banking sector, just digital giants in general have had a huge, huge win. Yeah, uh, almost with, to the this. point of, of make, and the, on, like in terms of the cash, almost to the point of making cash a taboo object, like oh, literally yeah, imbu- imbuing I mean, it with the propaganda of disease. <laughs> yeah, but, but imagine, I mean, think about it, like when the, like the sort of hard lockdown uh, phases. I mean, here in London, so like when in in March when they put the put their lockdown on, basically the big supermarkets were the only ones, you know, that were like most people were like the only times they'd leave their houses would go to these huge supermarkets, and the supermarkets were broadcasting over their their systems, you know, like you know keep distance, please use card payments, right? So basically there was like a gigantic propaganda machine working on half of the banking sector to the entire UK population. I mean, it's like it's like the it's like the best thing that they they, they could possibly imagine. It, it's mm. like it's like free advertising, um, and the state and has behavior been, behavior lasts as well. Yeah, yeah. Know? So it's it's going to be a huge thing. So now, um, the big thing is that's oh, that's probably going to happen is that the central banks, the central banks understand this issue because they're the ones who run the system, right? And they are now worried because like the basic political dynamic and. Sorry if this gets too technical, but like the private commercial banks are the ones who run the digital payment systems. They are members of the central banks, right? So the central bank has to try to keep those guys happy. 
you know, the Bank of England wants to keep Barclays and HSBC happy. But the Bank of England also has a, a different mandate, which is like, you got to protect the public. Okay. So protecting the public and banking stability requires them to protect the cash system. But when they try to protect the cash system, they upset their banking members because their banking members gain from the destruction of the cash system. So there's this huge like political battle that's going on behind the scenes. And the central banks don't want to come out and say, we want to, we're going to promote cash because they feel like it's, um, it'll seem like they're biased. Um, so one of the, and the German central banks, one of the first that's done it, say like, we actually promote cash. We support it. Um, and, but the Bank of England, for example, is like too scared to do that because mm. they don't want to upset Barclays. Uh, so this is what the battle behind the scenes is. Um, it's such an interesting dynamic um, unfolding, really going to, going to, I mean, obviously so many things that we don't, can't even really get our, our handle on are going to change so profoundly uh, out of this moment. Um, and it's so interesting to see the, the cash aspect of that being such a huge part of that. But before you go, thanks so much for, for all of this information. It's been, been so so, so interesting. Um, before you go, just a little small question. Uh, we are probably facing into a global economic uh, collapse, if not challenge. Um, how are you feeling about that? Um, you were breaking up there a little bit, but you were asking if there's, there's a global economic collapse coming. Yes, or and how you're feeling about that, or just the general rolling recessionary culture that we're going to be, are, are in and are entering into as a result of the pandemic, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you, you ask about how I, how I feel about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, there's going to be, uh, I mean, the whole sort of lockdown has been really fascinating because essentially it's the first time in decades, or I mean, more than that, that essentially somebody pushed pause on the, the economy and um it's a little bit like pressing pause on a on a treadmill that will slowly fall apart when it's not when it's not running you know like that's that's how you often think about it in an, an economy it's like um uh how do, how do i say this it's like if if everybody else is running and you stop running, you get dumped off the treadmill. Okay. That's what happens to a person, a precarious person in society, if they don't have a job. All right. They basically get dumped off the side. And, you know, like if you stop walking on a treadmill, you just get, you just fall off. Okay. But if everybody stops at the same time, the whole thing starts collapsing. <laughs> and that's what the recession is essentially all right mm. that's why as as they basically like launched lockdown they just said everyone has to stop or at least a large proportion of the non-essential workers have to stop um, and that basically started causing the the whole interconnected economic system to start breaking which is why all the states had to step in to try and essentially keep it going while the pause was being pushed now the whole sort of like all that crazy tension that's built up in the system is now like manifesting all over the place and the state, all these different states don't know what to do about it. So they're like trying to like get the treadmill to start working again, but there's like, there's a ton of crazy stuff going on. Um, 
So I have no idea. I'm sure right now there are some like insane behind the scenes negotiations going on. Um, there's probably like tons of corporations about to go bankrupt uh, that are being propped up behind the scenes by different governments. There is like probably insane levels of like debt um, that can't be paid, uh, but <laughs> you can't you can't really see it right now. But I suspect the next few months are going to be really intense in terms of. Um, those effects starting to manifest in different places. Um, on the positive side, uh, people for the first time in a long time have kind of been jolted out of complacency. So theoretically, it has opened up certain channels for people to think more creatively about economic systems and to, to maybe introduce some interesting radical policies. Um, the dark side of that is that it also becomes a time for like uh, nationalists and like various bigots of sorts to also like whip people up um so yeah interesting times brett thank you so much for for joining us um so much to think about that and hopefully we'll come back to you soon um as all of these crazy things continue to manifest uh, in europe and around the world really appreciate your time all right thanks so much What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? It's quite a general thing, but quite specific. And it's it's the accumulation of a number of things. And it is the first month of this government's tenure. There's a lot of things that I could name under that umbrella. Um, and one of the things that I think is even the funniest is how there's a comment made by somebody that... They were absolutely exhausted and they were going on their holidays after their first month. Um, But I would say they are exhausted because it's been shambles after shambles after what the fuck after are you actually joking after ah, come on. And like, you know, Una, and you know, I have a soft spot for Micheál Martin. And when I saw his face um, in the convention centre with his head in his hands, I was like, oh, as a person, my heart went out to him. But mother of Christ. And then one thing I would like to point out is, I hope it's not on purpose, but it feels like Leo Varadkar was like, okay, post-pandemic, get out of there, get out of Dodge, leave me all in charge, and then I'll take it up two years after when everything calms down again. When we're talking about the first month of government, Leo and Co are as much part of this shambles as Micheál Martin um, and the Green Party for their uh, propping up of this of this state of uh, shenanigans. So getting in the sea is the first month of this government's tenure. Yeah, that's very fair, I think. And now it's time for a new item uh, that myself and Andre intensely workshopped with a uh, plethora of various little marketing research teams uh, around the European Union and came up with a new item just because this is something that Andrea says all the time and uh, anyone who is in a WhatsApp relationship with Andrea will be very familiar with her use of the banana emoji. Uh, and crazy shit is happening all the time. Excuse me. So, welcome to the new item on uh, United Ireland that's called It's Bananas. <laughs> you say it, you say it. Uh, like it's usually led up with a lot of exasperation going, are they actually for real? This is Absolutely bananas. Like it's bananas. Um, I sound like you're one in AbFab. I'm obviously addicted to AbFab where she's like, carbon madness, it's madness, it's carbon madness. 
Uh, but that's how I feel when, whenever I pull out the, it's bananas, you know, I'm like, oh, for God's sake, I roll by a hundred. How is this going on? And to kick off this week's, uh, the first inauguration of It's Bananas is something that I'd had a very strange day today and I turned, came home and turned on my internet, turned on the internet, dialed up and there I was hit with the news, <laughs> the news that uh, the Tampax ad, one that everyone will be familiar with, whether it frustrates them or annoys them or they love where the girls are like, you got to get them up there, girls. Um, now I get it's annoying, but it has been banned by the Advertising Standards Authority banned in 2020 an ad for a tampon um, because they had 84 complaints. 84 complaints can now get an ad banned. And in their, uh, when they were talking about it, they're like, yeah, we actually don't agree with this. We don't agree with this. But because it was 84 complaints, it, it caused mass offense. So we're actually going to ban it. Well, advertising standards, you're in bits. Um, but also um, one like, some of the things that were said were it used in an inappropriate manner to discuss a sensitive topic. Sensitive! Sensitive! It's like 50% of the population may get a period. A period. It's not that sensitive. It's like, is going to the toilet sensitive? Is plucking my eyebrows sensitive? No. Also, is having a baby sensitive? No, because guess what? You have to have a period to have a baby. Um, And then... Well, you don't actually, but anyway, that's a different story. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But also, um, there was another statement that said, complaints of sexual innuendo said that the phrase, get them up there, girls, had sexual connotations and that the advertisement was sexualizing the wearing of tampons. Sexualizing the wearing of tampons. The only people who are sexualizing it are people who are suggesting that. Let me tell you, there is absolutely not one thing sexual about tampons because if there was, I would be using them a lot more. So, <laughs> like that is the most banana thing I've ever heard. A, the complaints, but B, the most banana thing is the fact that the Advertising Standards Authority upheld this. And I think, uh, like... Advertising Standards Authority, I think you got, you're going to have to look at your fruit bowl. It's full of bananas. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm really going to enjoy this item. Do you know that? I really think I am. Um, did you know that Courtney Cox was the first woman to say period on American television? Yeah, and that gorgeous ad. It was really tampon nice. Tampon commercial, yeah. Okay, that really was bananas. Thank you for that, Andrea. You're welcome. Now, fave bits, hit me. Oh, hang on, shit, I'm first. <laughs> okay, um, so my fave bits this week, number one, West Cork. I've gone through it, it's fine, I don't need to, to repeat it. Uh, number two, Good Girls season three. I just really like that show. It has the right mix of good dialogue, juicy story, action-packed, a little bit dark, a little bit tense. Um, and enjoyable. So uh, I'm very happy that that has returned. And my third fave bit this week is a book by Patrick Frayne uh, called OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. Uh, people may be familiar with Patrick Frayne's writer, writing. I'm sure there's uh, loads of his fans listen to this podcast. Patrick is just, I mean, for me, he's one of the best 
feature writers and, and, and critics uh, working in the country and beyond. His turn of phrase is exceptional. His observations are hilarious. He has this amazing dose of surrealism and fun and just kind of meandering brilliance. And so he has a new book coming out called OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. And I would really highly recommend it. Uh, he is a fantastic, fantastic writer. Um, one of the few journalists, I think, that makes me laugh out loud. Uh, obviously, Miriam Lord uh, would be another one. The dream. The dream. The dream. The best thing about this government by a mile. <laughs> um, so, yeah, big up Patrick Frain and uh, his new book, and if you love his writing, and who doesn't, you're going to want to pick that up. Andrea, what are your favourite bits? My favourite bits are, uh, firstly, I was in the cinema, as I said last week, but the Lighthouse Cinema has now reopened and I'm all about supporting cultural institutions. So go and help the Lighthouse Cinema out if you can and go and see a film um, because obviously we want cinemas to continue being able to open and Blah, blah, blah. We want everywhere to be able to open, but cinemas, I think, are pretty special. So they're a lovely cinema. Go and see them. Speaking of cinemas, I have seen this film in the cinema and it's on Netflix now and I watched it at the weekend. And oh my God, it just has the magic of cinematic joy. Um, I don't know. all the. This all, was one of my fave bits a few weeks ago. I, I only watched it again. So it's just... It's an epic joy and I think it deserves two fake bits and it is Skyscraper <laughs> with the rock. Um, who knew that that film would get two fake bits? Uh, it uh, is so good though. It's, it's really so good. good. It's oh die hard, God. basically. It's so good. Um, also, Normal People received four Emmys, which is brilliant. Um, I still haven't seen it, but I, I'm delighted that um, our culture and entertainment and uh creativity is being rewarded which would be something that we could maybe think about if we were in government of supporting and so that we could continue to maybe be nominated for Emmys in the future just something to think about Um, and then finally my favorite obviously I am sweating to go on the sesh and have a bop and Bergheim my fave sesh location has reopened alas it is not exactly the same um, in that there's only a capacity of 50 people but you get to go into the turbine room to this mm, which is amazing um, this sand exhibition not like sand it's like sand oral not like a really nice exhibition um, called 11 songs hall at Burgine and everyone sits and listens to this and it's the muse the sound that happens is responsive to the room and the room makes sounds in itself so like I just think that would be absolutely like, especially if uh, you have tried to get into Bergheim before and you couldn't get in, this would be the prime opportunity to go in and see what it's like inside because they're not being picky on the door. So if you queue, you could, you would definitely get in. So this is, is this in the Soleil room? Like with the part they usually do the kind of more ambient music? No, been... It's in the turbine. It's in like the big, huge one where they have. But the... is that not the one where they have the kind of ambient hard techno it's the hardest techno don't you know when you go up the stairs first it's oh and the main floor yeah yeah okay right yeah juicy um, I would love to go to that so that's my favourite that would that would be amazing you're like 
oh, the levels of which I miss going to um, a massive club for several hours. Oh, it's just the are magic. large. The magic. Um, of course, our um, final meeting to uh, nail down the details of United Ireland took course over approximately 11 hours in Bergheim. Well, look, um, look at us now. We really did. Look at us now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Andrea, what is the deal? The deal is, I'm kind of sick of the deal as much as we're sick of all the rules and fucking the impact of COVID. But like, we're all doing really well at wearing a mask. Great stuff. Uh, don't go on holidays abroad. Um, unless it's on, not even if it's on a green, a green list and especially not if you're on a pup uh, keep your distance, be sound to each other. And, you know, just remember, this is nothing to do with COVID, but just remember that that government and all the shenanigans is the most scarlet thing to happen. So no matter what happens to you, they're more scarlet. Oh, that's really good, actually. <laughs> it's like that thing of there's always someone else worse off. It's like, yeah, you could be the Irish government right now. <laughs> Get them up there, girls. Okay, tuna chicken roll this week. I've picked it. Andre is obviously suspicious of of my music taste week in, week out. Um, but I don't care. I'm just uh, of your stone, uh, stoner-esque music that's real chill because I only listen to Sunday Soothe, you know. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's also my vibe. But um, this this lies somewhere in between. Uh, it is the great John Hopkins with Emerald Rush. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. That was Cash or Nash. <laughs> right. We obviously came up with that on the on the go. <laughs> <laughs> and we are United Ireland. Ireland.